0: Hey guys, welcome to Unaboarded with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, Happy New Year, I think. Buckle up, this is gonna be an intense year for Liberty and for the life of our preborn neighbors. And if you listen to the show every week, you already know that, don't you? Well, I wanna share a special episode with you this week. This was a message I preached at Calvary Chapel, Placerville, uh, up in Northern California on uh, the first Sunday of the new year. This is probably my magnum office sermon. This is the longest message I've ever preached so no pressure to listen to the, whole, to the whole thing, but you should and you should send this message to friends, Christians who say, you know, that they're pro-life, but they can't vote to end abortion or worse yet, that they're a pro-choice Christian and so they're going to vote for Biden. This is the message that you send to these people. This is the clarion call. This is your marching orders. We can no longer remain on the bench. We have to get off the bench and put our feet on the ground. And. For the same of our pre-born neighbors and your grandchildren and the republic that you will hand to them, we have to engage. This is my call to action. This is my message of life for the church, for you and your children for 2021. Buckle up. Here we go. Good morning. How you doing, church? Well, I'll tell you what, pregnancy resource centers are one of the main answers to the problem of abortion today. There are over 2,300 pregnancy resource centers in the country. They outnumber abortion clinics almost two to one, according to Pregnancy Help News, which means that there are significantly more clinics focused on saving lives while providing all of the same non-controversial services that Planned Parenthood does, minus the baby butchery part. And the silence of the church in not supporting pregnancy resource centers, of course not this church, is a quite a critique on the church today who can't even put their money where their mouth is to support the people on the front lines. These are the people in the ditches with women when they choose whether to pay a physician, a hitman to kill their child or to choose life. And I know this because I was born in this movement. I like to say that I was a pro-life activist since my fetal days because my mother was the director of a pregnancy resource center while pregnant with me. Uh, in Azusa, California, stepped down when I was born as the firstborn, but I grew up doing the Walk for Life every year. I was the top childhood fundraiser as an eight-year-old for the Pregnancy Resource Center. Of course, didn't have a full comprehension of what I was campaigning against or for, as no eight-year-old can fully comprehend the horror of what we're going to talk about this morning. But I continued to grow in my knowledge of what was happening. And so I started the Pro-Life Club at Westmont College, a horrific Christian university that you should never send your children to, that hires pro-abortion professors, despite the fact that their motto is Christus Prumatum Tenens, Christ preeminent in all things except the prenatal Christ and every baby created in the image of the prenatal Christ who dwells in the same location that our Savior entered human history in, apparently. So I will never be invited to speak at chapel as an alum at Westmont College um, because I'm actually quite hated and I publicly called out by name the professors who still teach there who are pro-abortion. Well, we just celebrated Advent, right? You cannot prepare to welcome the coming of Christ in a womb that he once knit together while voting to kill babies created in the same location in the image of the same prenatal God. You cannot prepare to welcome the prenatal God while refusing to use your political voice to help end the genocide of baby image bearers who are in the same location. Because of your witness. Right? That's what we're being told. I, I can't vote for the pro-life party or politician because then my leftist friends will learn I voted for Trump. And then they won't hear a presentation of the gospel. Because I'll ruin my witness by doing that. I had many of my friends tell me that leading up to the election. Some of them I went to Westmont College with. You know what I told them? That knife cuts both ways. Do you know how many pagans have no respect for the consistency of the bride of Christ because they look at us and say, if they believed what they say they believe, which is that their God put on fetal flesh and identified with us from the moment we were we, you were you, the moment of conception, and now allowed himself to be whipped, aborted, murdered, to put our sins on himself. If those Christians believed that every baby in the womb was created in the image of the prenatal God, if they really believed that it's a genocide going on, they would be the biggest Republican hacks I know, because that's the only political party that provides any reasonable protection for the unborn, amen? Does it mean it's perfect? No. Do I wish Trump had done more for the unborn? Yes. Yes but he's still the most pro-life president in American history. That's still the only party that's even a viable option to protect the unborn. So that knife cuts both ways. You're compromising your witness to some other non-Christians by not voting for pro-life because they say, you don't believe what you say you believe. Because if you did, then you would see this as a genocide and you would be acting politically to protect these children. Well, this month marks 48 years since our Supreme Court did what it did many years ago. It found a new class of humans that weren't persons and then denied them the rights of personhood at the federal level. It's not the first time that our Christian forebears, our brothers and sisters, have had to fight a genocidal maniac government. Not the first time we Christians have been told, if you speak out politically, and you do what we tell you not to, I don't know, we might just put you in jail. It's been less than 100 years, folks. Less than 100 years since we murdered 6 million Jews. Now that was stopped thanks to America. But where was the German church? Oh, you see, that was political. While 13 million image bearers of God were killed, six million of which were Jews. But there were some voices, yeah? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Eberhard Besky, Martin Niemöller. Members of the confessing church in Germany. Why did they call themselves the confessing church? they were creating a line of demarcation in the, in the sand. They were tacitly saying to other German churches, if you can't speak up against the genocide of Jewish image bearers, if you can't get involved politically, to <laughs> help stop a Holocaust, then I don't know what Christ you're confessing. You can't say that from the pulpit, Seth. You can't question people's faith. Well, Bonhoeffer did. That's why they called themselves the confessing church. Bonhoeffer was saying, we're confessing the real Jesus. Because I don't know what Jesus it is. You're confessing if you can't even speak out against the slaughter of human beings. State sanctioned. One of Dietrich's best friends was a a man by the name of Eberhard Bethke and in Eric Metaxas's phenomenal biography on Bonhoeffer called Pastor Martyr Prophet Spy that's a biography I'd love to have by the way you know these speakers have these long bios when they get introduced i just want that pastor martyr prophet spy <laughs> well not the martyr part yet but well in metaxas's book he quotes Eberhard Bethke one of Bonhoeffer's best friends and he begins explaining the situation that Bonhoeffer and the members of the confessing church found themselves in in the 1930s. Now remember, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who fought his own genocidal country in their institution of genocide and was assassinated for his failed assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. Oh, I guess, I guess woke Christian pastors today would tell Bonhoeffer to read Romans 13. You know, it says be obedient to the governing authorities. Stop preaching the gospel, Dietrich. Why are you trying to murder politicians? Maybe some lessons for us today. Now, of course, we are in a different environment. We're in a constitutional republic. We still have political power to vote political bigots out of office. Right. But not in Germany. They couldn't just vote Hitler out. So Dietrich saw the landscape that he was in and actually believed that he was sinning in his assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler. Did you know that? He believed that it was wrong, but he believed that he had to do it, and he could ask for God's forgiveness later, because he saw Hitler as a drunk bus driver driving into a crowd of people, and he had a gun, and he could stop that, killing the driver, saving the people or not. That's how he saw the landscape. That's how he wrote about it. Wild. So here's what Bethke had to say about Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church. Bonhoeffer introduced us in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. The levels of confession and of resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer himself. We now realize that mere confession, and by confession he means proclamation, not necessarily Confession of sins means proclaiming. We now realize that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers, even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday. During the whole time, the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. Why should it? Hmm. Maybe because the gospel being preached said that, well, your gospel is not supposed to go into the political sphere. You keep that gospel in the church doors. Don't you get involved in stopping the Holocaust? Maybe because the gospel being preached in German churches didn't do anything to wake up the people of God, the bride of Christ, to protect the Jews. Just keep that gospel in your church. Bethke continues and said, Thus we were approaching this borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. What does this look like today? I'm pro-life. Our church is pro-life. We make a one-time donation to the Pregnancy Resource Center every year, and we give the Pregnancy Resource Center director five minutes once a year. We're super pro-life. Oh, but we won't say that it's a moral wrong to vote for the Democratic Party, the party of abortion and infanticide, who is doing the same thing that they did in 1850 by saying that some humans are not persons. Oh, we won't say that from the pulpit, because I don't want to compromise my witness. I can't tell people how to vote. So today, just like German Christians, our resistance to the forces of evil have only manifested itself writ large in American evangelicalism with words, confession. I'm pro-life. I have a pro-life bumper sticker, but I won't engage in the political sphere. This is what Bethke and Bonhoeffer would say to us. We're confessing pro-life beliefs, but refusing to resist the evil of abortion. And now this is coming from major pulpits in America. Christian leaders who ought to be leading the charge to help the bride of Christ abolish abortion. And instead, they're almost quite literally telling us to run back and cower and hide. You want some examples? Tim Keller, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York City. One of the most pro-abortion states in the country. In January of 2019, the Reproductive Health Act, remember that? Legalized abortion through point of birth. Removed abortions from the penal code. So if a criminal murders a pregnant woman, he'll only be charged with one count of homicide, the mothers and not the babies. Allowed non-doctors to perform abortions. And let the tower pink in New York City to celebrate reproductive health care. Should have been lit red for the blood of children on Andrew Cuomo's hands. And all the old people that he killed by sending them back into nursing homes. Oh, look, if you dehumanize life in the womb, you won't care about it outside the womb. So Tim Keller posts this on Facebook in September. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil. Oh, confession, right belief but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country or which policies are most effective. He says, the current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many, many other topics, most of which the Bible does not speak to directly. This means, I'm quoting verbatim. This is how many times I've had to (laughs) give this sermon. This means, says Keller, when it comes to voting, political involvement, political alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience. When it comes to voting, political involvement, and determining alliances, a Christian has liberty of conscience. What's that mean? Freedom to vote however you want. It means that God doesn't care about your vote. He says, Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. You can find that Facebook post on his Facebook page. So according to Tim Keller's reasoning, brothers and sisters, supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s, the party of slavery, was acceptable for Christians because you know what? The Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in decreasing or ending slavery, to quote Keller. (laughs) According to Tim Keller's reasoning, supporting Hitler and his regime was acceptable for German Christians because, come on, brothers and sisters, they had liberty of conscience too to vote for the Holocaust? Now, of course, I know I'm perverting history. They couldn't have just voted Hitler out. But you see what I mean. But you just have liberty of conscience when it comes to political engagement because the Bible doesn't tell us how to address these issues. Now, if Keller rejects these suggestions as permissible for the Christian, which I guarantee you he does, but he is indeed pro-life, then his own argument is rendered false. Why? Because abortion is wrong for the same exact reasons that slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. They legally denied rights of personhood to image bearers of God while dehumanizing them in order to justify their mistreatment. Euphemisms. Reproductive health care, reproductive justice, women's rights. Abortion is health care. That ridiculously failed presidential candidate Julian Castro literally called abortion reproductive justice. We're through the looking glass now, folks. Welcome to 1984 where two plus two equals five, and the party is always right. In short, Tim Keller apparently believes that clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. But it's not, brothers and sisters, and Tim Keller has forgotten what William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist, taught us when he said that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. I think scripture might have something to say about like faith, like going somewhere. Like faith leads to, uh, oh yeah, works. 1 John three eighteen, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. James two eighteen, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith buy my works. But it gets worse. Many Christian leaders are actually helping politicians get elected, whose platform includes advancing, promoting, and funding abortions through point of birth. And these Christian leaders believe that social justice should take a precedent over actual justice, you know, like stopping the injustice of legally state-sanctioned killing of innocent human beings. You want an example? Lecrae, Christian rap artist, millions of social media followers, responsible for bringing many young people to Christ, though I don't know what Christ they're confessing now. Has publicly shared his experience with abortion with his girlfriend before he came to Christ, has mourned over it, and has been quite outspoken in his pro-life beliefs in previous years, but has been slipping down the slippery slope of critical race theory the last couple years. In 2019, posted a photo. 2018, posted a photo with Stacey Abrams, the failed gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, who has a 100% approval rating from Planned Parenthood. Now, he didn't post a photo with her to say, we need to reach across a political aisle and love our neighbor. No, 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 this was a woman he admired. Well, LaCrae in December... Performed at a get out the early vote rally for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. The two Democratic candidates running for the two Senate seats in Georgia that we have a special election runoff for this week. And if they win, the Senate is tied. And who becomes the tie breaking vote? Kamala Harris, our Attorney General. who jailed pro-lifers for undercover journalism, exposing Planned Parenthood for selling dead baby body arms and legs on the black market. Well, you know about that in this area, don't you? David and Sandra Merritt still being prosecuted. While accepting political donations from Planned Parenthood. So Kamala Harris was prostituting her attorney general duties to her political campaign donors. No undercover journalist in California history has ever been prosecuted or jailed for exposing illegal activity, except pro-lifers. So they prosecute the whistleblowers and not the ones breaking federal law, because it is a federal law that said sell fetal baby body parts. That's who would be the tie-breaking vote in the Senate if a cataclysmic event doesn't happen and if Trump doesn't get reelected. And they'll have the House as well. So Lecrae is performing <laughs> for people who believe the same thing that that party believed in 1850, that not all humans are persons. And if we define you as a non-person, we can treat you like property. Lecrae performing at a political event to ensure the victory of pro-abortion senators is morally equivalent to if Frederick Douglass had spoken at a Stephen Douglas rally in 1860. Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat who ran against Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and wanted to protect states' rights to purchase human beings and treat them like cows because hashtag federalism. Hmm. He is ensuring the continued slaughter and oppression of his own people. Why? Because 4% of the American public obtains almost 40% of the annual abortions. Black women of childbearing age Equal 4% of the American public, they obtain 37 to 40% of the annual abortions. Guess what? Planned Parenthood knows this. So, a study by Protecting Black Life found that 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of black neighborhoods. Because they know that that segment of the population obtains a disproportionate amount of abortions, and that equals more cash flow for killing their children. Fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream, the founder of Planned Parenthood, of less black people. Margaret Sanger launched the Negro Project to encourage pastors to push birth control and sterilization because she wanted less black people and infirmed people. So much for cancel culture. I thought we were supposed to cancel anything that reminded us of our horrific past except Planned Parenthood, except the Democratic Party, which was responsible for slavery in the first place. Where's their cancellation? (sighs) But don't worry, Lecrae is here to help ensure more black babies are murdered because hashtag social justice or something like that. When quality of life outside the womb becomes more important than protection of life in the womb, your moral compass is broken. Lecrae is not pro-life, he is pro-abortion anything he says to the contrary is contradicted by his political adv- advocation for state sanctioned killing of his black neighbors and thanks to abortion the black birth rate has flatlined for decades in america did you know that oh anti racism you know it would be anti racist wanting more black people like i do and not flatlining their birth rate by pushing abortion did you know last year Planned Parenthood had the gall to tweet this tweet on their Twitter? It is statistically more dangerous for black women to give childbirth than to have an abortion. Which is a lie. Statistically, just objectively, it's a lie. <laughs> How racist is that? So Planned Parenthood who understands that a massive part of their cash flow comes from 4% of the public who obtains 40% of the abortions, then they're pandering to that 4% to say, If you care about your health and your family, you should probably kill your baby and pay us to do it because that's actually safer than childbirth. You can find this tweet (laughs) on Planned Parenthood's Twitter. Fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream. So Lecrae, who positions himself now as a woke progressive anti-racist, is helping... Pro-abortion politicians get elected who believe the same thing that racist Democrats believed in the 1850s, namely that not all humans are persons, and if the party defines you out of existence, then they can kill you and treat you like property. Wow. You can't tell your neighbor you love them, but that it also should be legal to kill them. That's not how any of this works, Lecrae. If the Democratic Party were still the party of slavery... Would Lecrae hobnob with and support the campaigns of actual racists and slavery supporters? I don't think so. Of course not. But guess what? That party says and believes the same thing today that they did in 1850. That not all humans are persons. Lecrae is endorsing and embracing the ideology of slavery. How so? You're thinking that's too intense of a statement, Seth. Let me show you. The Democratic Party once said that blacks were the property of plantation owners whose land they lived on. And now they say that babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. But where one is has no bearing on who one is. We're valuable regardless of where we find ourselves. Whether we're on a plantation, in church, at our work, in our home, or in the womb. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. Lecrae's pro-life rhetoric is meaningless. In fact, it's disgusting and offensive. You cannot be anti-slavery and vote for slavery. You cannot be pro-life and vote for abortion. But this moral and spiritual confusion on abortion today, friends, has unfortunately become par for the course amongst many Christian leaders and pastors today who don't believe they have any duty they don't believe they have any political obligation to help stop the genocide of baby image bearers who dwell in the location that you just celebrated your savior entering human history in. A womb! And I can testify to this confusion. I speak to thousands of students across the country, Protestant and Catholic high schools, universities, youth groups, churches, and Christian leaders at conferences and churches across the country. And unfortunately, friends, this moral and spiritual fog that many of our nation's pastors are living in is being transmuted to the next generation. I think the other side understands the importance of reaching your children. Why do I know this? Well, the former president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, responsible for more murdered, unarmed black lives in two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century, teamed up with Cecile Rich, teamed up with Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and they launched an organization called Supermajority with the express goal of training up 2 million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election. I know this because in L.A. County, where I grew up, Planned Parenthood teamed up with the health department of the county, and the School system to launch 50 Planned Parenthood pup tents on 50 different public high schools in Los Angeles County. Now they won't be performing abortions, but you see, but they'll just be providing uh, sexual health care and counseling. Little pup tents, Planned Parenthood pup tents on high school campuses, just to have conversations with your young people. And because in the state of California, you can get the abortion pill and you can get birth control if you're over the age of 12 without parental consent, Planned Parenthood is putting your young people into their sales funnel. Where are the churches in LA County? I heard nothing from major pastors in LA when this happened. Oh, we see, because they're not political. Santa Barbara Unified School District, at the end of 2020, launched their Health Connected Teen Talk. Hey, that sounds good, right? Oh, wait, you mean it provided a Planned Parenthood abortion facility locator for teenagers to find the local abortion clinic and coach them how to avoid parental consent laws by getting a judicial bypass. For minors to kill their parents' grandchildren without them knowing Yeah, I think the other side wants to reach your children. Why won't we do for good what the other side will do for evil? The question is not, are young people being discipled to think a certain way on abortion? They are. The question is, who's doing the discipling? And will we contend? Will we enter the public square and contend for truth? To ensure that the next generation will be, what, salt and light in the culture? Almost every time I speak somewhere, I have someone come up to me and say, I know someone, it's either their kid or someone they know who went to Westmont College, and when they graduated, they were a flaming leftist. Our Christian colleges are creating advocates for the enemy. But we won't speak out about that, right, because the church is not political. So friends, while our politics seems to be falling apart and the church seems to be laying down her arms in her spiritual duties right now, we cannot. You see, confession alone is not enough. Orthodoxy alone is not enough. It must lead to orthopraxy, right? Practice. Faith must evidence itself in works. We must resist the evil of our times and the evil of abortion by acting, by doing something. So, to engage in resistance and influence the culture for life, we as Christians must bring moral, spiritual, and political clarity to the issue of abortion. And you would think if you got moral and spiritual clarity right, it would lead to political clarity. <clears throat> you would think if you knew that blacks are humans and their image bears, it would lead to the political clarity that there should be laws passed to protect them. <laughs> but is that clarity happening for our preborn neighbors? No, people like Keller are encouraging political confusion from the pulpit. You have liberty of conscience to vote however you want. So how do we develop this clarity? How do we develop moral clarity on abortion? This is important because what does the other side tell us? They say abortion is a deeply complex moral issue. So you shouldn't impose your morality on others. You should leave that to women's own conscience. Now, isn't it funny, though, that the people who say that abortion is deeply complex so we should let women decide? They're the people who believe that the unborn is a blob of tissue and not a person. If the baby is not a person and it's a polyp, then abortion's not complex. What's complex about removing a polyp? Who comes back from removing a polyp and people are like, what about the polyp's body? You don't have bodily autonomy to kill a polyp? There would be no pro-polyp life people. Because that's not a person with rights. Isn't that interesting? They say it's deeply complex, but then they say it's not a person with rights. But that should encourage you. That means eternity is written on the heart of man. And God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. And so even those who hate God and advocate for the killing of his own image bearers can't help but acknowledge at a more fundamental level that maybe there's something else going on. Maybe these are humans. How do we bring moral clarity to this issue? I'm actually not gonna turn to scripture first, I'm just going to turn to natural law. I'm going to turn to science. Remember the party of science? That babies aren't babies and men are women and women can be men? It's science. Well, what does the science of embryology teach us? What's embryology? The study of the embryo. What's an embryo? A human being at a very early stage in their physical development. The science of embryology teaches us that from the moment of conception, there's a distinct living and whole human being. Distinct, living, and whole. Not my terms. Terms you'll find in any embryology textbook on any university campus that hasn't banned the scientific facts that they don't like that might lead people to become pro-life, but conversation for another time. What's distinct mean? Distinct means separate and unique, right? Distinct means I'm not you and you're not me. Well, if the unborn is distinct from the moment of conception, if that's what the science says, then what does that mean as it's applied to the issue of abortion? It means that the body in her body is not her body if it's distinct. And don't we know this at a self-evident level? Because do we really want to admit that pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes? Right, Her body, her choice. If there's only one body involved, the mother's, then when she's pregnant, she has two brains, two different DNA codes existing simultaneously, quite possibly two different blood types. Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, There it is. Now pregnant women have male genitalia. And the left goes, yep, babies are not humans and men can be women and women can be men. I mean, this is absolutely anti-scientific bigotry, right? Okay, so the unborn child is distinct because pregnant women don't have penises. Secondly, the unborn child is living. Living because dead things don't grow and the unborn child meets all of the requirements for a living thing. You know those requirements we learned in like junior high biology? And lastly, the unborn child directs their own growth from within. So pregnant women don't sit there going, don't forget to grow today, baby. Right, my second child, my daughter, is one month old today. So, you know, here's something that never happened. My wife never (laughs) came to me and said, babe, come here. Can you come whisper to my womb and remind our baby to grow? Because babies develop themselves from within, independent of the wishes of their parents. So they're living. And lastly, they're whole. What does it mean to be a whole human being? Don't confuse wholeness with, like, development or level of development, okay? A whole human being is simply a human being who has everything they need, intrinsically, to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. So, for example, I want you to imagine for a second that you just want tickets to a safari excursion in Africa, okay? and You get to go with some of your friends here at the church. And you take some of your kids with you, maybe your grandkids, But you know, they all have iPhones and digital cameras, but you know, you're cool, you kick it old school. So you bring your Polaroid camera, remember those? I mean, I guess the hipster rule is that like, the old becomes new and it becomes hip again, right? So now everyone has Polaroid cameras again. But you parents are like, no, I remember when those were new. So you win these tickets on this safari excursion into the deserts of Africa, right? And after a few hours, the tour guide tells you on the intercom, hey, we're entering an area where a black jaguar was sighted recently. Now, black jaguars are rarely seen and even more rarely photographed. So it's a very elusive beast. It would be cool to see, right? But after two or three hours, sunset comes. You have those few minutes of twilight. Nobody's seen a black jaguar. Your kids and grandkids are too impatient. They're back playing games on their iPhone, right? right? But you're patient. You have your Polaroid camera. And you have your eyes glued to the window. And to your luck, while everyone else in the bus is distracted, a black jaguar sprints out from the bushes, leaps across the path in front of the bus, and you capture a picture of him airborne. The photo comes out. By the time the photo comes out, the jaguar's hit the other side. It's gone. No one's seen it. And you stand up and you go, Look at this. I got a picture of a black jaguar. What if I leaned over your right shoulder, ripped the photo out of your hands, tore it up in little pieces, and threw it out the window? Yeah, this woman's gone. I'm going to beat you up after church. Now, what if I responded to your open mouth horror and I said, Brother, sister, calm down, chill out? Right, the words that every wife wants to hear from their husband. It's fine, because guess what? That wasn't a picture of a black jaguar. It was, just a, it, was like, it was actually just a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. Now, you probably respond to me by saying, Seth, what are you talking about? The jaguar was already there. We just couldn't see him yet. Everything that was necessary for that photo to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. It just needed time. That's what I mean when I say from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. Not partially human, a whole human being, who already has everything they need from the moment of conception to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Even if we can't see him or her yet, they just need time. We all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did that continuum begin? The moment of conception? Hashtag science, the party of science, right? That's what the science of embryology teaches us. That's a human being from the moment of conception. This is not a political argument. This is not a religious argument. This is a scientific argument. What is the unborn? That's the fundamental question in the issue of abortion. Because we can't answer, can we kill the unborn, until we first answer the question, what is the unborn? Well, there's your answer. Okay. What happens when I make that case to the party of science? Did you know more and more pro-choice people today are admitting that you are right, that you are right as a pro-lifer when you say that it's a human from the moment of conception, and then they say, but it doesn't matter. I'm pro-abortion through point of birth, and you should fund those abortions. <laughs> wait, what? Wait, wait, you're, you're saying that I'm right when, you, when I say it's a human, but you're saying we should be able to kill them anyways? What the... And they go, yeah, because it's not a person. Oh, your same party said that in 1850. Oh, the Nazis said that in 1940. Now we would never separate the term human from person. We would use those synonymously. Human, person, person, human. But those with a vested political interest to make money off of the killing of innocent human beings will always separate the term human from person. And every time those terms have been separated historically, disastrous consequences have followed. Do I need to give you more examples? Human, but not persons. So the pro-choice individual will do the same thing that the pro-slavery individual did then. They will begin creating functional checkboxes that they say must be met in order to have rights and be a person. What were some of those in 1850? Your melanin that you see they have the wrong skin color. Or they said that blacks were not as intellectually superior as whites. So they said that intellect was a function that they used to deny personhood to blacks. Now, did racists ever offer an argument as to why skin color and intellect were value-giving in the first place? No, they just assumed it. Isn't it nice when you're the party in control? So what functions or capacities do people say about the unborn today or required that they must have in order to be a person with rights? There are four. There are four functional possessions of capacities or differences between unborn people and born people that pro-choicers say, because the unborn doesn't possess these functions, because they differ from us in these ways, they're not persons and we can kill them. Just like they said that, because you have a different skin color or intellect, we can kill you. Now they say, because you're smaller, less developed, located in a different environment, and more dependent, we can kill you. It's the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, to remember. Now, I live in Southern California where I can't even spell the word snow, so bear with me. But SLED, use SLED as the acronym to remember the only four differences between unborn humans and born humans. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. They say because the unborn is smaller, less developed, located elsewhere and more dependent, we can kill them and they're not persons. Okay, yes, the unborn child is smaller than the newborn child. Newborn children are smaller than toddlers. Toddlers are smaller than teenagers. I'm six foot three, so if you're under six foot three, I'm sorry, you're not a person. And if I kill you, I could call it reproductive health care. No, no, you see, by killing you, I've prevented you from reproducing. So that's why I called it reproductive health care. What? Size has no bearing on our rights. Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean they have more rights? Of course not. So they say we can kill babies because, I mean, come on, in the first trimester, you can't even see what's in there. We don't have rights because of our size. We have rights because of our human nature, which began at the moment of conception. What's the second difference? Level of development. They say we can kill babies through abortion because, you know, they're not self-aware. They can't feel pain. They're not viable. (laughs) Well, what's necessary to realize self-awareness, viability, and ability to feel pain? A level of development. (laughs) You'll realize that given time. The difference in level of development between the grandparent and the grandchild is significantly larger than the difference of development between the fetus and the toddler. So can grandparents kill their grandchildren? Because grandparents are more developed. What? Why does level of development have any bearing on our rights? So can I kill you if you're less developed than me? Of course not. Size, level of development, environment, Ah, location. They say we can kill babies through abortion because they're in the womb, because they're in a different location, right? So slaves were the property of plantation owners whose land they lived on, and now babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. Did you know the womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves in America in 2021? You are more likely of being murdered in a womb than you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum. And it was created to be the environment that you were protected in and valued. Do you know the beauty of the womb, friends? Do you know that some women who have gotten cancer while they're pregnant have still opted for chemotherapy? And in most cases, the baby is born fine, perfect, and flawless. Unaffected by the chemo. Why? Why? Because the womb was created to be a safe place. It's a more dangerous location than any other in the country. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. So according to the logic of abortion advocates, the unborn child is not a person with zero rights until its last toe leaves the vaginal canal. Because as long as it's in that location, it's not a person. This is why the Democratic Party has been on board with Partial birth abortions which are illegal at a federal level but no no thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg who worked very hard during her time on the Supreme Court to make that procedure legal and protect it before it was illegal. What's a partial birth abortion? Your parents can cover your children's ears if you'd like. You pull a baby out by its legs in a forced delivery before natural contractions happen. And when the Legs are flailing around outside of the birth canal. But the head and and shoulders are still in the birth canal. You stick scissors into the back of the neck, and then you open them to create a hole. And then you stick a vacuum catheter machine, and you suck the brains out. It's a half-deliver baby. The legs are doing this. But you see, it was still partially in the environment of the womb. So it's not a person, right? So apparently, during childbirth, the, magi- the, <laughs> the fetus fairy flies up and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on the child as it exits the birth canal. And when that last toe leaves the birth canal, oh my gosh, it's a person! And now it has human rights. That's the insanity of choice. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. The last difference between unborn people and born people that are used by pro-choicers to kill the unborn. Is the unborn child dependent on the mother? Yes, and in the first trimester and early second trimester, that child cannot survive apart from their dependency on their mother. But tell me, does that dependency stop after birth? What happens if you leave an infant in the crib and do nothing? They die and you're charged with infanticide as the parent. But what if the mom says to the judge, but, 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 but bodily autonomy? My breath, my choice. I shouldn't have to breastfeed this child if I don't want to support it with my body because they're dependent. Would that argument hold up in a court of law? No, the judge would probably say, What? It's because the child is more dependent that you have a greater obligation to care for them. This is why Mother Teresa said that we will be judged by how we treat the most vulnerable and least among us. <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for staying tuned into this very long but very important message and sermon to kick off the new year, to equip, encourage and fire you up to defend life. Uh, listen, if they're going to censor uh, and digitally assassinate the duly elected city president of the, of the country, They will do that to anyone who shares ideas that they don't like, they being the democratic liberal establishment. It's all the same thing, whether it's tech lords in Silicon Valley, the Democratic Party or the media, they do not like what you believe and what you stand for. But it's more important than ever that we stand for those principles, for natural rights. We'd start with the right to life, because if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And so if you want to help those ideas reach more people, in a year where increasingly those ideas might be not allowed to reach more people, then consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our nine different tiers. They just have fun perks, you know, little incentives as a thank you for supporting the show. But you will enable us to create two episodes a week and begin bringing a team with us to film interactive content putting these ideas that you appreciate listening to on the show in a conversational format to create viral content to change minds, change hearts, and save lives on social media while we can still get those ideas out. So thank you. Consider becoming a patron of the show, patreon.com forward slash unaborted, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. So if we can kill babies because they're dependent on their mothers, Can we kill born people who are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life support? Caretakers, like the child in the womb, they're dependent on someone or something else without which they cannot continue to live. Who wants to get on board with killing those people? Of course not. The Democratic Party wants to, though. Because when you dehumanize life in the womb, you'll dehumanize it outside the womb. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. That's why they're on board with euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide. This is why they push abortions for your unborn children when you learn that there's something wrong with them, when they're not chromosomally or physically perfect. Every time I go on a speaking tour, at least one or two parents comes up to me and says, yep, the doctor was asking me when I wanted to schedule the abortion when we learned our baby had Down syndrome in the womb. Because it's dependent. You don't want to give that child bad quality of life. This is the ideology of choice, and the Democratic Party. So moral clarity, what is it? It's a human being, that's what the science says. Is it a person? Yes, because any argument you use to justify killing the unborn can be turned right around and used to justify killing you. If we can kill unborn babies because they're smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, and more dependent, can I kill you if you're smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, and more dependent? Why not? Because in either case, it's a human. It's just a human located six inches away and a human who's moved six inches. Either way, it's a human. So if we accept those justifications to kill and mistreat a certain class of human beings, why not apply it to mistreat another class of human beings? Ah, because the party decides. The party is always right. Abraham Lincoln used this same type of argumentation against racist Democrats. Yes, I'm going hard after that party. I don't think the Republican Party is perfect, but there's only one party saying that an entire class of human beings can be set aside for slaughter. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to go hard after that party. What did Abraham Lincoln say to racists who used functional arguments to justify mistreating the slave? We actually have his argumentation. We have a little piece of paper Abraham Lincoln had when he wrote down fragments on slavery. And this was about four years before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which are awesome if you've studied them. They went on for like eight hours. The rebuttals were like 45 minutes to an hour. We get like 60 seconds for our presidential debates now. I mean, truly substantive arguments. And thousands of people came out in person to hear the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Well, four years prior, Abraham Lincoln was mastering his abolitionist apologetics. And here's what he wrote down. He said, in an imagined debate with a slavery supporter, the following. He said, okay, you say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker take care, by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. But Lincoln continues, he says, oh, but you say that whites are intellectually the superiors of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again, by this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. Oh, but you say it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Lincoln was saying that in accepting the institution of slavery and the premises that made it plausible in the first place, namely that not all humans are created equal, southern states were putting into place the premises that would justify their own enslavement. Because they were grounding rights in things that come in varying degrees. Let me explain that to you. Does skin color come in varying degrees? If we all stood up here and put our arms out, it would be different degrees or shades of skin color. Does intellectual capacity come in varying degrees, or do we have it all identically? It comes in varying degrees. Does our interest come in varying degrees? Yes. What happens with the emotionally depressed? Do they have as much interest to go on living? No, they don't have as much interest to go on living. So if I kill them, have I not violated their rights? I guess not. Do you see? So Lincoln was saying that you're grounding rights in things that come in varying degrees. So if you do that, it follows that rights come in varying degrees. And those with a paler skin must have more rights, or those with a greater intellectual capacity must have more rights. But guess what? It's totally subjective. It's totally subjective. Because then someone else can come along and say, well, I'm albino. so I can enslave you, plantation owner. It's a purely political power game. Who gets to define the capacities, capacities or traits necessary to have rights? The only thing we have in common is a human nature. So the only way we can maintain human equality and equal treatment before the law is by grounding rights in the only thing we have in common, our human nature. And that human nature began when? The moment of conception. Moral clarity. Now, notice, have I cited any Bible verses to make my case? But I'm communicating biblical truth nonetheless, because all truth is God's truth. What about spiritual clarity? And you're thinking, well, that was pretty great, Seth. We don't need spiritual clarity. Yes, but so many of our progressive brothers and sisters today will say they're pro-life personally, but they'll say that, well, the Bible doesn't condemn abortion, so Christians shouldn't either. Ever heard that ridiculous, pithy saying, Christians should speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent? It's one of the most ridiculous, evil, demonic lines. Why? Because there's lots of things the Bible doesn't condemn. Does that mean it condones them? You want some examples? The Bible doesn't condemn forced female circumcision. I guess Christians shouldn't speak out about that when that happens in some Muslim countries, huh? Because the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not um, mutilate underage girls. You see where this reasoning leads? If we're supposed to be silent where the Bible's silent? The Bible doesn't condemn lynching homosexuals. Should we not have an opinion on that? The Bible has nothing to say about genetically engineered babies or cloning. Can we not reach spiritual clarity on that? Now, our progressive brothers and sisters would probably say something like this. Brother, sister, let me explain it to you. The Bible provides like first principles and theological truths from which we can develop spiritual clarity on a whole range of moral topics. Mm -hmm. Continue. That would apply to abortion as well. God has given us all that we need through his word to develop spiritual clarity on abortion. So how do we help develop the spiritual clarity for the growing number of woke evangelicals today who insist that they're going to be silent on abortion, that that's not an issue for the pulpit because the Bible doesn't speak out against abortion, right? And these are people who, who will agree with you with the moral case, but it's not leading to spiritual clarity. Okay, what truths can we pull out from Scripture to develop spiritual clarity? The first one, Imago Dei, Genesis. God made man and woman in his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them but like you, I grow overly familiar with these theological concepts, especially being raised in the church. What does that mean, Imago Dei? It means that the triune God, in perfect unity with himself, not in need of your fellowship, breathes out the Milky Way, (sighs) drops oceans, laughs animals into existence, says it is good, then makes human beings as the peak and pinnacle, yeah, of his entire creation, and says it's all for you, have fun! as stewards with dominion cultivate the earth be fruitful and multiply it's all for you the divine spark of God resides in your soul that's what it means to be an image bearer of God and that divine spark was with you when you were you at the moment of conception how much does God care about life how much does God care about the unborn child he was one God enters human history in a womb that he once knit together. The prenatal, John the Baptist, is doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room, pregnant with the creator of the universe, who is at that moment knitting John the Baptist together in the womb. Poof! Incarnation. Advent, Christmas, what we just celebrated. So you cannot prepare to prepare for the Advent, the coming of the prenatal God. While voting to kill babies in the same location created in his image. We're supposed to prepare for God's coming during Advent, right? The coming. Well, you cannot prepare to welcome God from Mary's womb to her arms while saying that you can't vote to end the genocide of baby image bears in the same location because of your witness. If every human being is created in the image of God, and what did the signs just teach us? The unborn children are what? Human beings. So unborn children are image bearers. All right, spiritual clarity. All right, what's the second thing we can pull from scripture to develop spiritual clarity? Again, for these woke progressives now in the church who say, you're right, I'm pro-life too. But it's not a pulpit issue. It's not a church issue because the Bible's silent on it. How do we help them? Well, Jesus summarizes all the law and the prophets down to two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is the unborn our neighbor? Well, if they're a human, they're a neighbor. Isn't this what made the question of the lawyer and the parable of the Good Samaritan so offensive? Do you remember? Well, firstly, he approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law, how do you read it? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, MDiv, Jesus. In a, in a stroke of theological brilliance, summarizes all of the Bible, the Old Testament, into two commandments. And Jesus, what does he say? You have answered correctly. A plus. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and he is my neighbor. He doesn't know? I guess not. He must have just forgotten, Right. Jesus, can you help me remember who my neighbor is? Because I'm like so spiritual, I'm like so woke that like I want to love all neighbors because I'm that holy. So can you remind me who my neighbor is? Is that why he asked the question? And seeking to justify himself, he said, and who is my neighbor? What was the first question he asked though? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's trying to figure out how he can get to heaven and still hate certain people. He's creating categories of neighbor and non-neighbor so he can shirk himself of the responsibility of loving those in the category of non-neighbor. There is no other class of human beings today to whom the question is more frequently directed, are they really neighbors, than pre-born image bearers? And that question is coming from the pulpits in America, from Tim Keller who insists that the unborn isn't intrinsically valuable enough to, to, to warrant political protection. You have liberty of conscience to vote however you want. It can be hard to love a neighbor that you never see, though. What neighbor is more hidden than the unborn? We see our actual neighbors. We see our refugee neighbors. We see our homeless neighbors. But we pretty much never see our unborn neighbors. They dwell in wombs that we once came from and are taken behind sterile clinic doors where their limbs are ripped off their body or their mother takes an abortion pill, poisoning them to death in the womb. And you fund it, and the pulpits are silent. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Do you remember the story of Emmett Till? Emmett Till was a young teenage boy in Honey, Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. Right before, actually, and according to accounts, he was bragging to his friends that he had a white girlfriend, and they said, "Yeah, right, dude. Go prove it. Go walk into that convenience store and flirt with the white clerk behind the desk." This is a story. This has really happened. So he walks in there, and he, according to accounts, he catcalled her or something, you know. He leaves. A few days later. That woman's husband and her friends found Emmett Till, beat the living pulp out of him till his face looked like a deflated football, wrapped twine around his neck and threw him into the Mississippi River and they found his body days later and they didn't know who they found. Emmett Till's mother requested an open casket funeral. You know what religious leaders told her? You know what pastors told her? You're disrespecting your little boy don't do that, that's too offensive, it's too, it's too graphic. Do you want to know what her response was? I want the world to see what they did to my little boy. The photo of his deflated face in a casket was published in the newspaper, and many historians believe that it was not Rosa Parks' actions, but it was the published photo of Emmett Till's face that launched the Civil Rights Movement. And Rosa Parks said that when she refused to walk to the back of the bus, she was thinking of Emmett Till. Evil succeeds when evil dwells in darkness. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. But when pro-lifers put graphic imagery of abortion in the public square to drag the deeds of darkness, woke pastors and Christians tell us, that's too offensive. You're offending the dead, aborted babies. No one should see that. Well, we're going to give you a short opportunity to see what God sees 3,000 times a day. Christians need to open the casket on abortion. We need to do it gently and lovingly, but we need to do it nonetheless because truth matters. This is a 55-second video clip of what God sees 3,000 times a day. It is graphic and it is disturbing because abortion is graphic and disturbing. But we don't want anyone to feel tricked or manipulated into watching something that they would have chosen to opt out of. Okay? We respect your decisions as a family, for your children, and for yourself. So listen, I put instrumental music over the video clip, <clears throat> so if you close your eyes or avert your gaze, you're not even going to hear anything you don't want to hear. When the music starts, you can close your eyes. When it stops, you can open your eyes, and you would have opted out of the entire presentation. I'm leaving the decision on you, but we're going to show it nonetheless because it's time for us to open the casket on the most hidden injustice in world history that takes the lives of 55 million human beings every year worldwide between 2,700 and 3,000 times a day over 63 million babies since 1973. Worldwide since 1980, one and a half billion with a B. But Tim Keller would tell you, you have liberty of conscience to vote to keep that legal and that you're welcome as a member in his church if you're registered as a Democrat and you vote for pro-abortion Democrats, it's fine, he'll say. Listen, if this is part of your story, man or woman, I just want to remind you of what I believe Jesus would tell you if he were here bodily, okay? I believe Jesus would tell you that he is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. You see, abortion is not a blacklist sin that somehow bans you from the grace of God. If you want evidence of this, by the way? Let's just look to the story of King David really quick because he had some spiritual speed bumps in his walk with God, to put it lightly. Namely, that he was a peeping Tom on his roof, checking out Bathsheba, taking a shower while his army was fighting a battle he should have been leading. Toxic masculinity. (laughs) Well, he impregnates Bathsheba and then murders her husband. (laughs) Jeez Louise, man. If there was grace for King David, there's grace for you calls him a man after his own heart and he's in the hall of faith. But friends, there were consequences to David's sin nonetheless. I won't sugarcoat it for you. And I won't sugarcoat your sin if you were complicit in an abortion because I believe you won't experience true and lasting healing until you acknowledge the consequences of what was done. So the prophet Nathan confronts David regarding his sin. And after briefly justifying it like we kind of all have the tendency to do, King David hits his knees in repentance acknowledges what he's done. And his repentance was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But there were consequences. His baby died. But what did King David say? He said, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. That means that if you accept the gospel of grace and repent from your abortion, not only is Jesus faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, but it also means that like King David, you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day, and they are seated on the lap of Jesus waiting to welcome you into eternal glory. But that hope is only available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So hear that and receive that, and know that like King David, God wants to create beauty out of your ashes and use you to help where you used to hurt but we have to expose the deeds of darkness. The other side has a field day when churches in the bride of Christ are more committed to hiding the horror of abortion than they are. They laugh at us when we refuse to show this imagery. They're like, (laughs) God's people are helping us hide the horror of abortion so we can keep it legal longer and turn a greater profit on it because nobody sees it have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Spiritual clarity. And by the way, if you want to know how God feels about abortion, read his words to the Israelites for their complicity and child sacrifice with the Canaanites. What does God say in Jeremiah to the Israelites regarding them sacrificing their babies on the burning bronze hands of a pagan idol? He says, it never entered my mind that you would do this. That's hyperbole. Of course God knows that they were going to do that. He's saying, this is so ludicrous. Why do people engage in child sacrifice to pagan idols? Well, historically, people have believed that they will receive some type of blessing in return for the sacrifice of their children. Satan does not care the name of the God that you sacrificed your children to. You can call him Molech then, or you can call him the pagan gods of convenience, money, family, education, and career well-being. He doesn't care the name of the god that you label him. As long as you continue to shove children down his throat, he'll be satisfied. So we sacrifice our children for something in return. Improved quality of life for ourselves. Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't. So he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of the father and hurts the church. You want to talk about hurting our witness? Well, the pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute reports that nearly 40% of the annual abortions are performed on women who identify as evangelical or Protestant. I wonder why we can't fix abortion outside the walls of the church, maybe because we haven't figured it out inside the walls of the church, because the pulpits are silent. The silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs. So Francis Schaeffer says, that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. Moral and spiritual clarity demands, requires a political response. And those who say otherwise would never say the same thing about slavery. That's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We look down our noses in 2021 at people in the 1940s in Germany and in America in 1850 and say, wow, what bigots? How could they have accepted the institution of mistreating and murdering human beings? We do the same thing. And we recommend books like Metaxas's Bonhoeffer to say, we need these words in our lives. Bonhoeffer would have ripped us a new one while calling himself the confessing church by saying that German churches were not confessing the real Christ because they were silent and politically neutral on genocide. a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. And the other side has no qualms or concerns about being perceived as partisan, right? The other side doesn't care about their witness. They're like, come on, a constitutional republic where I have political power and I can engage in the political sphere to protect abortion and make money off of it? Awesome. They love federalism when it works for them, allows them to protect abortion. Ah, but we Christians, we won't engage in the political sphere. We won't say who to vote for because our witness, people might not listen to the gospel if we vote to end the genocide of baby image bears created in the image of the prenatal God. It's high time for Christians to abandon their concern over their reputation and fear of partisan labels in order to engage in the political work that is necessary and required to make it illegal to kill innocent human beings. So if we're called to love our neighbor, what's the best way to love a neighbor? That it's legal to kill. I know, stop killing them. And pass laws that say you can't kill them. But what do people tell us? Well, people will get abortions anyways. Yeah, men still rape women despite the fact that rape is illegal. Is that a good argument for making rape legal? Men still beat their wives despite the fact that spousal abuse is illegal. Is that a good argument to legalize spousal abuse? young, disturbed young men still shoot up schools despite the fact that it's illegal. Is that a good argument to legalize school shootings? What? This is ridiculous. Of course, passing laws against something decreases it. How do I know this? According to a study, prior to 1973, when was abortion legalized? 1973. Prior to Roe versus Wade, the annual illegal abortion rate was 98,000, a median, an average of 98,000. Illegal abortions before the legalization of abortion. Want to know what it was in 1974, 1975? One in 0.6 million. Clearly, law impacts behavior. So of course we should pass laws against killing babies in the womb because it will save lives and it's the right thing to do. But many Christians and Christian leaders like Tim Keller refuse to act politically to protect babies from dismemberment because they insist the Bible doesn't allow us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote or not vote for. Remember? Remember? Keller said Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for or every Christian must vote for. And then he says, unless you can show me a biblical command to that effect. Very well, Tim, thank you for the invitation. Here's a biblical argument for why we can tell our brothers and sisters who they can or cannot vote for. And maybe I wouldn't have made this argument if we lived in a more united America that didn't have one political party devoted to the proposition that an entire class of human beings could be rounded up for slaughter. But because that's our divide, yes, I'm going to make a biblical case that we can tell our Christians, brothers, and sisters who to or not to vote for. Okay. The Bible commands us to hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Proverbs twenty four eleven. The Bible commands us to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and ensure justice for those being crushed. An appropriate definition of abortion, given what you just saw. That's Proverbs 31, 8. And the Bible tells us to seek the good of the city where I've sent you into exile. But people tell me stuff. Well, that was just said to the Israelites. We are also exiles in this land for our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. So like the Israelites, we should seek the good of the city or the country that we find ourselves in. And it's a privilege and freedom bought with a lot of blood that Christians in America are able to speak up for those who cannot within a political system that gives power to the people. You see, you are the most powerful political entity in human history. Did you know that? Who's the king in America? We are. We, the people, elect politicians who govern by our consent. What did Spider Man's uncle say? With great power comes great responsibility. What did Jesus of Nazareth say? To whom much is given, much is required. So we will be judged more harshly by how we engage in this political environment because we're so powerful. But we're so used to our blessings in America, aren't we? We forget how much power we wield, politically. More so than any king or monarch, because we can just vote these people out of office. Now, Of course, there's controversy going on right now, and we need Republicans with Spine to engage in that, but we don't have time for that conversation right now. But if we don't engage in the political work necessary to protect our institutions and protect the natural rights that our institutions are built upon, and what's the first natural right? Life! Because without it, you don't have liberty or property or the pursuit of happiness. Those rights mean little if you can be murdered, and I'm supposed to fund it. So to refuse to use that form of speech, what form of speech? The political speech, the vote. To end state-sanctioned slaughter is itself wrong. For as Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminded us, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. And yet Tim Keller writes a very popular opinion editorial in the New York Times in 2018 entitled How Do Christians Fit Into a Two-Party System? They don't. Inarguable premise, of course, the church is not Republican or Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's a monarch and he's coming back. So Jesus is political in that sense. (laughs) But yeah, no, the church doesn't fit into a two-party system, but that doesn't mean that all political parties are created equal. That doesn't mean that one party is not more evil than the other. And the same people who say, well, we can't engage in politics because we're not political will turn right around and say that Christians in the 1850s ought to have engaged in politics and slavery, right? Uh, Chronological snobbery. So Tim Keller in this piece, after telling people in his Facebook post that we can't tell people how to vote or not vote for, in this piece in New York Times, he says he lambasts Christians in the 1850s for what? Not engaging in politics to end slavery. (laughs) And he says by abdicating their political involvement, he, he says they were, quote, supporting the social status quo, which was what? Slavery. So he's saying you're supporting slavery by claiming to be neutral sounds like Bonhoeffer. And then he says, to not be political is to be political. This is coming from Keller, whose Facebook post I just read you, where he said you have liberty of conscience to vote for whatever party you want. But he wouldn't have told Christians in 1850 that they had liberty of conscience to vote for the Democratic Party, the party of slavery. But they believe the same thing today. They've just looked at a new class of human beings that they say are not persons. But it's the same ideology, and it's still subjective. Because what happens when another party comes along and says, actually, it's being pro-choice that makes you unwanted and we can kill you. Or it's being a conservative and being pro-life that makes you unwanted because you have the wrong ideology. It's completely subjective. So like the Israelites, we are exiles in this land. But in defending the Christian's political freedom of conscience, Keller is is telling you this. God does not care about your vote. God, God cares nothing about your vote because you have liberty of conscience. But friends, I assure you that a vote which could help end the genocide of baby image bearers is a vote God cares deeply about. I can assure you of that. The best way to love and speak up for that class of victims would firstly be to stop their slaughter and ensure they were protected. And the way we do that in America is by voting and passing laws. So can we accomplish that? That speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves within a political system where we have more accountability because we have more power? Can we accomplish all of that by voting for the very party responsible for, committed to, and profiting off of the killing? Anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would tell you no. So Tim, um, Tim, I think we can tell our brothers and sisters who not to vote for. Okay, what about who to vote for? Well, James tells us that whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it For him, it is sin. So if we have the ability to stop the state-sanctioned slaughter of image bearers, and we have the power to stop it, and we don't, because we care too much about what our leftist friends think about us, then we are in sin. Anyone who tells you otherwise simply ask them if they would defend not using their political voice to help end slavery in 1850 and they will start waxing and waning with their sanctimonious piety how about they would have been been Republican hacks in the 1850s because that was the only political party that was reasonably situated to stop slavery I don't understand! Why won't you do for good what the other side will do for evil? This is called soft bigotry Let me explain Bigotry is discrimination against someone else for being different, right? And it's particularly nasty when it's based off of immutable characteristics. An immutable characteristic is something you have no control over, right? So if I discriminate against you based off of your gender or skin color or ethnicity, that's particularly nasty because you have no control over that. right? Okay, so that's bigotry. So people are bigots if they're pro-choice because they discriminate against the unborn, by denying them a right to life because they're different. Because they're smaller, less developed, located elsewhere and more dependent. But then we have woke Christian progressives who, who identify with pro-life labels, but then they say, but I'm not gonna vote to protect these children. Or actually, I'll vote against them because I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life. Well, then you're saying that unborn children don't have enough intrinsic dignity and value to warrant political protection but that blacks and Jews did have enough intrinsic dignity to warrant political protection. That's soft bigotry. You're denying natural rights to an entire class of human beings while claiming to be pro-life because of your witness. Now, it goes without saying, friends, that there is only one political party that will allow Christians to accomplish that best way to love our pre-born neighbors by passing laws to protect them and making it illegal to kill them. And those who, so 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 I so my point is that, yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for. Because there's only one party that will allow us to speak up for them, ensure justice for those being crushed, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And those who say otherwise are as constitutional law scholar Hadley Arts says, not possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. If you say that you have no political duty, to vote to end abortion, but you claim to be a Christian and pro-life, I tell you, you are not possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because if you you were, you would be engaging to protect them in the same way that you claim you would if you were an abolitionist in 1850. And yet our opponents, and some who claim to be our allies, seek to neutralize the political action of pro-lifers and create political confusion by telling us, really, you're not really pro-life unless, you've heard this one, you're not really pro-life unless you support open borders, universal healthcare, universal basic income, you say America's systemically racist and you're solving poverty every day. You've heard this one, right? It's a redefinition of pro-life. It says, I'm not pro-life, I'm whole life. And so even though I'm pro-life, I can't vote for the Republican Party because they don't do as good of a job providing health care and income and entitlement programs to people already born. So I'm a pro-life evangelical for Biden. And this was a group that was launched right before the 2020 election, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. Did you hear the other one? It was a fiscal conservatives for Karl Marx. Oh wait, sorry, sorry, that doesn't work. Anyways, because they redefined pro-life. They cared more about quality of life outside the womb than protection of life in it. So, savable children became acceptable sacrifices on the altar of themselves. If you believe that, your moral compass is broken and you're not pro-life. But that's the redefinition of pro-life happening. But many pro-lifers, in order to avoid accusations of hypocrisy because they want to be seen as like consistent life, right, or whole life, or pro-life, they accept this redefinition of pro-life. And it's harming the pro-life movement. Because we have young people accepting this redefinition who then say... I can't vote for the Republican party, the only party that can end abortion, because I'm whole life. And the Democratic party is pro-life at the border and they're pro-life on health care and they're, you know. So. And it's harming the pro-life movement and it's siphoning votes away from ending abortion by people whose sanctimonious piety won't allow them to vote to end abortion. Now it's interesting, none of those other societal ills involve the state-sanctioned slaughter of innocent human beings, at worst, it's just not giving you federal programs. <laughs> but bro, the bro, abortion issue actually entails the slaughter of innocent human beings that they're telling us we must overlook to support quality of life outside the womb. But how does it follow that because we seek to end abortion and pass laws to protect the unborn, that we are therefore responsible for every other form of societal ill? It's only the pro-life movement that gets this critique, by the way, have you noticed? Was Oscar Schindler not really anti-Holocaust? Because he only focused his energy and wealth on saving Jews, that selfish jerk. I guess the American Cancer Society, they're actually not anti-cancer because they only try to solve one form of disease. And Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, they actually weren't anti-slavery because they only tried to abolish one form of evil. But that's what they tell pro-lifers. You're not really pro-life unless you're solving poverty. Supporting universal healthcare, universal basic income, and open borders. Then you can be pro-life, what? It's good to have movements and organizations focused on one goal, one goal, because they maximize the likelihood that they'll solve it. So the selective application of the you're not really pro-life unless critique kind of gives away the game. They don't really care about applying that consistently. They're only trying to undermine the pro-life movement and its goals. Ah, yes. But then they tell us pro-lifers shouldn't be single issue voters. This is the second way they try to undermine our political advocation for the unborn. You know, you should approach the polls, Christian, with like all issues on, this, on, on an equal moral playing field. Don't create a moral hierarchy out of abortion. Don't treat it as a litmus test of the republic. You need to go to the polls and, and, and hold these issues at the sa- same playing field. Pro-life, universal health care, um, uh, entitlement programs, uh, and universal basic income, because that's super pro-life you need to actually hold all these things on the same playing field. Only then are you really pro-life. So don't be a single-issue voter. So that's why these woke progressives tell us that they're voting for the Democratic Party because they can't be a single-issue voter, and they see more life issues on the Democratic side. These myths are very damaging to the church and the pro-life movement because young people are adopting this redefinition of pro-life, and then they're not even advocating for the unborn at all. Now, abortion isn't the only issue of our day, right? Right? Just like slavery wasn't the only issue of the day in 1850 and killing Jews wasn't the only issue in 1940, but they were both the dominant issues of their day. While many issues are important, they do not all carry the same moral weight. Imagine telling abolitionists, why are you a single issue voter on slavery? You need to approach the polls and you need to hold all these issues in tension. So if you were really anti-slavery and abolitionist, you'd actually vote for the Democratic Party, the party of slavery, because you see their whole life. And so they're going to provide federal entitlement programs for middle-class white people who don't have the capital to purchase human beings and treat them like cattle on their plantations. And their livelihoods and incomes matter too. So don't treat slavery as a litmus test of, of the republic. Just overlook it and vote for the Democratic Party because that's the abolitionist thing to do. That is equally ridiculous to the critique against the pro-lifer when it tells them, don't be a single-issue voter. Overlook abortion for other leftist justice causes. Wild. The selective application of the single-issue voting critique reveals that our critics and some pro-lifers who have adopted this belief either don't believe the unborn to be fully human or worse yet, they do believe the unborn to be fully human but that their genocide doesn't warrant voting single-issue. But it does because the right to life is the most fundamental right. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And so you've watched this play out in real time, folks, in 2020. Democratic leaders, governors, mayors refusing to protect the natural right to liberty. Saying you do not have the liberty to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment. To gather. You don't have that liberty. The same politicians refusing to protect property against the theft, looting, and burning of woke activists who believe that America is systemically racist. And by the way, they're all pro-abortion, so that's the most systemically racist thing ever, because there's actually an institution built around killing black babies, but you're not supposed to say that. I wonder why they're ignoring the natural right to liberty and property. Maybe because 48 years ago, that party turned their back on the most fundamental natural right, life. If I can't trust you to protect the first natural right, how can I protect you? How can I trust you to protect any other right that flows from the first and most important of all rights? If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. As long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence is completely foreign to the Founding Fathers. By ignoring the natural right to life that all human beings have, we should not be surprised when that government ignores every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. So friends, we can't be caught sleeping anymore. The consequences are just too high. We have to get off the bench and put our boots on the ground and engage on behalf of those who cannot speak, on behalf of those who cannot, and yet, like God's people in Gethsemane, were sleeping. All the enemy of God was awake, activated, and engaged in his Father's duty, in his Father's mission. Judas was more animated and awake serving his Father than the people of God were serving the only Father. And we're doing it again. We're sleeping in the garden. Well, the enemies of God are awake and animated, boy, are they eager! They are excited to engage in our political sphere to protect abortion and target pro-lifers who seek to protect the unborn. So what political threats are our pre-born neighbors facing, our pre-born brothers and sisters? Well, assuming a cataclysmic event does not happen, assuming that President Trump is not re-elected, and assuming that Lecrae gets his wish, and the Senate is tied and Kamala Harris becomes the tie-breaking vote, here's what would happen. I am not demonizing my opponent's positions. These are words almost verbatim from Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's mouth over the last two years with what they would do if they got the Oval Office. Here you go. They will codify Roe v. Wade into federal law they will institute pre-clearance guidelines to stop pro-life states from passing pro-life laws. What's a pre-clearance guideline? Well, it's the the absolute destruction of federalism and the democratic will, because Kamala Harris, who will be declared president right after Joe Biden is sworn in because his party will suddenly turn around and say he's not mentally fit to lead, she will sit in the Oval Office and say, I have these guidelines here that tell me if you as an individual state with your sovereign leadership are allowed to pass pro-life laws. And because they just codified Roe v. Wade into federal law, They'll say, uh, South Dakota, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. Yeah, you actually can't pass pro-life laws at the state level anymore. That's what will happen, and millions of more babies will be killed. They will add four more Supreme Court justices. They've said they would do this, all with the jurisprudence of RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who believe that partial birth abortion should be legal and funded by your tax dollars. And we will have no check on power at the Supreme Court level. And the pro-life movement and its goals will be, over, will be put back literally decades, and none of us will probably live to see the overturning of abortion. Unless the church wakes up, unless the sleeping giant in America wakes up, they will abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps tax dollars from funding abortions through Medicaid reimbursements and is actually responsible for saving over 2 million babies because women often won't go through with the abortion if they don't have the money through Medicaid reimbursements. And you can go to hellohyde.com or .org, hellohyde, and it shows you how it saved all these lives since it was instituted. Joe Biden supported the Hyde Amendment until a week before he launched his campaign in 2018. Uh, I wonder why. Because his party would treat him like an outcast and a racist if he supported any type of legislation that could save any baby. What else will they do? They will increase the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions, and then they will make D.C. and Puerto Rico a state, getting four more Senate seats for Democrats and probably ending the Republican Party on the national level. And they'll abolish the filibuster so those pesky pro-life Republicans can't stop them from passing radical abortion legislation. But it's not a big deal. (laughs) So just don't be political, church. The legislative attempts of the pro-life movement will be ended but the church won't wake up because it can't be political, right? It is a moral wrong to vote for a party who makes it part of their platform to promote and expand the slaughter of innocent human beings. So what can you do? Love your neighbor? Practically, what does it look like to love your neighbor? How does it look like to love a neighbor it's legal to kill? Here are four things, and then we'll wrap up here. I need you to take personal responsibility in every election for the rest of your life, whether it's local, congressional, or presidential, to get 10 people to the polls with you and convince them to vote for candidates who will respect their only job description to protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens. And that includes our pre-born neighbors. Take personal responsibility. Get your boots on the ground. Secondly, learn how to persuasively and graciously communicate your pro-life views. Because you're like, just wrap up already, Seth. There's no way I can remember all this. I get it. So subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. It's one of the fastest growing pro-life podcasts in the country. And it exists to equip you to become a pro-life ninja. And you'll be flipping around the Bay Area, just saving babies all over the place and changing people's minds. And if you listen every week for a few months, I guarantee you, you will feel like a pro-life apologist. Okay, So do that. You can subscribe to my newsletter at my website, sethgruber.com, and you'll get regular content to equip you to defend life. If we're supposed to always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the faith that we have in Christ, so too should we always be prepared to give a defense as to how that gospel informs how we view social issues and moral issues. Thirdly, join or start a pro-life ministry at your church to save lives and end abortion. Every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says open with the permission of the Church of Jesus Christ. Will we own that? Will we own the fact that abortion has been happening on our watch and with our permission? Studies have shown that almost 80% of women driving into an abortion clinic will turn around and go home if there's Christians standing on the sidewalks praying. 80%? Why? Because eternity is written on the heart of man. And even men and women who have rationalized to pay a hitman to kill their child have a sense of shame so they don't want to be seen by others walking into a clinic that they know is going to kill their child. Why else would they turn around and go home? If they were shameless about it, they'd give these Christians on the sidewalks the bird, and they'd go right in and pay them to kill their child, but they have a sense of shame. So 80% roughly go around and leave and go home if there's people standing outside. What would happen if we put a Christian witness outside every abortion clinic in the country? We would bankrupt the abortion industry and the politics would soon follow. Will we wake up though? So I partnered with an organization called Love Life that wants to put a Christian witness outside every abortion clinic in the country. They have 150 church partners just in Charlotte, North Carolina alone, 150. What do those church partners do? Well, when they are regularly outside of abortion clinics, ministering to women and praying and saving babies, and a woman says yes and chooses life, they give her a baby shower, they get her a car, they get her an apartment, they pay her rent, and they give her diapers for a year. Then she accepts Jesus, delivers that child, and dedicates it in the church that she became a member in. And that story has happened over and over and over and over again in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is why I partner with them. So I go around the country speaking in churches, waking them up and saying, do this the hope of the gospel, and the help of the local church, salt and light. So if you're convicted and you're saying, Seth, what do I do now? What are my marching orders? Go to www.lovelife.org america. Lovelife.org america. These are born-again evangelical brothers and sisters. Actually, some of their biggest partner churches in Charlotte are Calvary chapels, okay? And we're working on getting this going at Chino Hills right now, okay? We want some West Coast partners because they haven't had any yet. They've been East Coast primarily. They're coming out in January. I'm doing a tour with them. We're starting to get things going. We're waking up the church, the sleeping giant that could end abortion if we wanted to, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. So if you're like, wow, that's a big job description. Yeah, and then they train you and disciple you and walk you through the steps on how to start a pro-life ministry in your church. Lovelife.com, lovelife.org slash America. Fill out an interest form and they'll start training you and hand-holding you so that it doesn't feel overwhelming. Save babies in your community and abortion in this country. Fourthly, support pro-life organizations. Put your money where your mouth is. The Good Samaritan sacrificed his time, his energy, and his money. He paid the innkeeper to nurse the man back to health, and then when he came back, he wrote the innkeeper a blank check for caring for the bleeding victim while he was gone. Will we put our money where our mouth is? Many of you do, thank you. Continue to do that. Support the local pro-life pregnancy center. If this has been valuable to you, these are the ideas I articulate in uh, much shorter presentations uh, with young people at schools all across the country. The next generation. So you can text babies to 474747, 47 47, babies to 474747, or you can go to sethgruber.com if you'd like to partner with me to reach more young people. Okay, you guys are very patient. This is horrifically long. Let's finish with this. We're in a distinct place in human history, but the battle we face is one that our spiritual forefathers have faced before us. And so I want to finish with the story of Oskar Schindler. Maybe you've read the book. Maybe you've seen the movie Schindler's List. If you haven't, uh, spoiler alert, okay. Oskar Schindler was a very rich entrepreneur and businessman in Germany during the Nazi regime. Did you know he was actually a member of the Nazi party? But God woke him up. God pricked his conscience, grabbed his heart, and he started to become horrified at the atrocities being committed against his Jewish neighbors, image bearers. So he starts using his influence and his great wealth to buy Jews off of the Nazi death camp lists and employ them in his factory to hide them from the Nazis. It's estimated that because of his personal sacrifices, he saved over 1,000 image bearers from a Holocaust. A 1,000? How many generations did that turn into? How many generations have pro-life pregnancy centers saved? But how many generations are we going to save personally? If you've seen the film, you'll know that in the final scene, the announcement rings out that the war has ended! The Allied troops have won! America. Defending life and liberty everywhere, but not defending life on our own shores now. But the war is ended, the Allied troops have won, and he's surrounded by these Jewish brothers and sisters who owe him their very lives, literally. And all Oscar Schindler can do is begin to weep while his friends are partying. And his friend comes up to me and says, brother, brother, what is wrong? And he looks at his friend, whose life he has also saved, and he says, I could have saved one more. This was coming from a man who went to the wall to love his neighbor, who is bankrupt because he spent all of his money in exchange for lives. He looks at his golden pin on his jacket that identifies him as a member of the Nazi party and he says, this is gold. I could have sold this and saved two more. He looks at his fancy car, one of the last items to his name, and he says, my car? My car? Why did I keep this? I could have sold this and saved ten more. I could have saved one more. The question that echoes from the 1940s to our time today is this. Do we take our Holocaust in 2021 as seriously as Oscar Schindler took his? Do we? If, if we do, ladies and gentlemen, then I need your confession to result in resistance. I need your orthodoxy to result in orthopraxy. I need your faith to result in works. I need you to not be The Levite and the priest who walked by on the other side of the road while there was a bleeding victim. I believe one day when we stand before God, we are actually all going to give a personal account for what we did to help end the genocide of the greatest class of human beings and the greatest numbers we have ever seen. And I pray that you and I can say with William Wilberforce... Let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene. God is waiting for his church to engage. And guys, the, ch- the world is watching you. The world is watching the bride of Christ to see if the largest sleeping giant in the world will wake up. I hope I will see you on the battlefield. In the meantime, go out there and give them heaven. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for listening to that entire message. If you did make it all the way, well done listening to me ramble that long. But I think it was a timely and important message. And it was long because you need to be prepared for what is going to happen in the next couple years. And uh, I'm sure that the church will stand in the gap and finally wake up to defend life. Share this episode with someone that you love and that thinks differently than you and use it as a way to have a conversation with them over coffee uh, because it's important that we maintain our social fabric together as it continues to deteriorate and disintegrate. Have those conversations with people that think differently from you. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, follow me on social media, subscribe on YouTube. That would really help us continue to grow that while we can still have a voice on these platforms and go to SethGruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B is S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to view my speaking schedule. If you want to come hear me speak live and local or to support my mission to reach the church and young people, to change minds, change hearts, save lives, and equip them to stay in for life. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs>